0: We come, Father, as we open your word. We are reminded of its truth, of its promises, as we get once again a glimpse of what is taking place in heaven. Open our hearts to what you have for us. May the Holy Spirit move across this place and everyone who is listening, live streaming. Speak to each individual heart only as he is able. Come and fill me and empower me and... me, I pray for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Take God's Word, would you, this morning and turn to the Revelation chapter 5, Revelation 5. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, not the Revelation of John, but this book is called the Revelation of Jesus, and it's given to the Apostle John who gives it to us, his bondservants, And among the many things that God writes about in this book, He gives us descriptions of what heaven is like, and there's a lot of misinformation about heaven. If I were to do a course on heaven and a systematic theology, I would certainly include Revelation chapters 4 and 5. But unfortunately, many today have abandoned what the truth of Scripture says for their own fantasies, and many evangelicals are gobbling them up. Last time, uh, we discussed the fact that wherever you go in the world, people have an expectation, a hope, be it real or false. There's a hope that there's life beyond the grave. And that's not by accident because the Scripture says God has written eternity into our hearts. But just because people have an expectation of the afterlife, it may not be an accurate expectation. We live in a day of syncretism where all religions are viewed equally, and so many of them are blended together. If you're a Hindu in the third largest religion of the world, a religion that is being widespread through America through yoga, as we studied recently on a Wednesday night, the Hindu holy book, the Vedas, among others, tells us that when a person dies, they are reincarnated. They're born again, and they come back, possibly as an insect and as an animal, as a person depending on their karma, and your karma is basically what you do in life, that everything you do in life determines what you will be in the next reincarnated state, and the goal of a Hindu is to break ultimately that channel of reincarnation and to reach what they call moksha, oneness with God, or if you are a Muslim, as we studied last Wednesday night, a member of the second largest religion of the world, then your concept of heaven comes from the Quran. And so those men who flew those airplanes into the World Trade Centers read these words from the Prophet Muhammad. There are six things with Allah for the martyr. He is forgiven with the first flow of blood he suffers. He is shown his place in paradise. He is protected from punishment in the grave, secured from the greatest terror, the crown of dignity is placed upon his head. He is married to 72 wives, and he may intercede for 70 of his close relatives. Still others pull their concept of heaven from the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price. And so, if a Mormon shows up at your door, they may tell you, I believe that God lives on the planet Kolob, and that I believe that God has a plan for for all of us, and I believe that that plan involves me getting my own planet someday. Or if you're a member of the Christian science movement, kind of like grape nuts, there's no grape, there's no nuts, Christian science, there's no Christianity, and there's no science to it. But Mary Baker Eddy taught that you could ultimately reach a perfect state of mind. And then there are born-again Christians who are gobbling up on evangelical presses, books about heaven, many which are grossly inaccurate. One of the most popular one is Heaven is for Real, and it's the story of Colton Burbo, who at the age of four dies from a Burst appendix and then supposedly comes back and tells his dad, who's a physician, all that happened, and his dad writes a book on it. And evangelical churches across America study it every year. There's DVD series. There's workbooks that go with it. And evangelical presses are happy to print these things because it makes them wealthy and it makes the author wealthy. But they are as dangerous as they are seductive when they go beyond the realm of Scripture. And so we live in a day of shallow Christianity. We no longer believe in Scripture alone alone. And so, many evangelicals are not all that different from Roman Catholics in that they have some writing beyond the Scripture that they think is authoritative. But when we come to the end of this book that primarily deals with heaven, God warns that anyone who adds or subtracts to this book will have their part removed from the tree of life. On one occasion, Jesus was having a dialogue with Nicodemus about salvation in heaven. And he said to him in John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's reminding Nicodemus that he speaks with absolute authority, that he's uniquely qualified to speak about heaven. He says, paraphrased, no one has gone into heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. Recently on a national talk show that unfortunately our own radio station aired, sometimes we don't know what's going to be said. Uh, They were talking about these books that are being written and, and endorsing them as a legitimate means to discover heaven. And the argument of the talk show host and the one he was interviewing, well, Paul went to heaven and came back. John went to heaven and came back. Why can't someone today come to heaven and come back and tell it? Because those men are apostles. And to be an apostle You had to have been hand-selected by Jesus Christ. You had to have seen Him in His resurrected body. And if those first two things were true, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. So there's a lot of false teaching in our day, and it's important that we renew our minds in this day of 20-minute sermons and this day of a lot of sloppy gush that's being dealt from pulpits that has very little to do with the truth of the Word of God, but it brings the people in. So, gird up your minds for action as we read our text this morning. I want to begin in verse 8, where we left off last time, of Revelation chapter 5. Follow along when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom in priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and the land be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, for those of us who are new, let me bring you into the context of where we are. We've learned from Revelation 1-7 that the theme of this book is that He is coming with the clouds. It's the return of Jesus from heaven. And God's divine outline for this book is found in Revelation 1 and verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past. Write the things which are, that's the present. And the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. God gave us a divine outline so we could not misrepresent or potentially misinterpret this book. The things that were, that you have seen. And so in chapter 1, he writes what he had seen of that glorified Christ in heaven, and he records the vision for us. Then he writes about the things that are, things that were present in his day, and he writes of seven churches that, in many ways, typify churches across the world in every time frame of church history. There are lessons that we can learn from the seven churches that are unending. That's the present. And then the things meta meta-tata, after these things, that is the future. So, beginning in chapter 4, we move into the futuristic section of the book of the Revelation. Notice how chapter 4 opens. Uh, There is an open door, which we saw as a picture of the rapture. Twice over, after these things, that's the same two words, metatata, of the last three words in John 1.19, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. Meta ta ta. After these things. Now, if you remember from last time, this is a picture of the rapture of the church. And it's not by accident that he finds these 24 elders in heaven. And we did a study on the number 24 that it is a representative number of a large host of people. And I illustrated that for you from the Word of God. And so these are... 24 elders who represent the church that has been taken into heaven. And so it's not by accident that the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 are never mentioned again. And the next time we see the church is when it comes back in glory with the Lord Jesus in Revelation 19. And so 4 and 5 really give us a scene that is unfolding. Uh, It's really a precursor to the seals to come. And it's a precursor to the four riders of the apocalypse, because God is setting the stage for judgment as it's going to fall. And when you come to chapter 6, things will dramatically change in the Revelation all the way through the 19th chapter. Describing that seven-year time frame, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You do not want to be left behind and miss the rapture of the church. And while it is entirely possible to miss the rapture because you're not saved, it is absolutely impossible to miss the second coming of Christ. There are two distinctly different events. The rapture is one event when Christ comes to translate his people into his heaven. We will meet him in the clouds. The second coming is, Every eye will see Him. He will plant His feet on the Mount of Olives as this slide shows the comparison between the two. He comes first for His church. He comes back at the second coming with His church. The rapture, He takes us to heaven. It's called the Day of Christ in the Bible. The second coming, He brings us to the earth where we will rule and reign with Him. And that's called the Day of the Lord, which is a long period of time that's pictured in the Word of God. So chapter 5 brings us into this courtroom. Notice, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. As you come into chapter 5, you come into a majestic courtroom. It's not by accident that today we even model our courtrooms in a majestic way. They're usually built in a fine with fine wood and magnificent seating and everything else. I was recently in the a, a federal court in Washington, D.C., where my son is clerking. I thought, man, this room is breathtaking. Well, that's nothing compared to the room that we will be in. Remember, this is a future event. When you come to chapters 4 and 5, you are there. If today you are born again, what you are reading from chapter 4 and 5, you are seeing the church who is in heaven. You'll be a part of this group that is doing these various activities in this chapter and you will see Jesus is the center of it all I saw on the right hand of him we identified that one sitting as being God the Father he is specifically identified in the fourth chapter I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals now we saw that this is no book like we think of a book today what we call a codex, a book like you have in your lap this morning that's bound and has numerous pages. Literally, it's a scroll as indicated there in the margin of the New American Standard. And it's no ordinary scroll. Unlike most scrolls, it's written on the front side and the back side, and it's sealed with seven seals. And I illustrated for you both from the culture of the day, and even from the Old Testament, that this is what we would call a last will and testament, a very special document, but no ordinary last will and testament. This is indeed the title deed to the earth. And it's a scroll sealed up with seven seals. And I saw, verse 2, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who? Who is worthy? to open the book and to break its seals. Every first century reader would know that this seven-sealed scroll was a last will and testament, that it was a title deed. And this strong angel is asking for someone to claim the title deed to the earth. And verse 3 tells us that with a loud voice, he tells us that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. What he says echoes throughout the universe, throughout the heavens, throughout the Earth below, even in hell beneath. Everyone hears this voice, and I can imagine the explanations the world will come up. Aliens are speaking to us. Who knows what they'll be saying. But across the universe is asked the question, who is worthy? And this silence is broken by John who begins to weep. Notice verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Not an angel in heaven. There was not a Christian on earth. Not a prophet. Not an apostle. No one alive. No one in heaven. No one on earth was worthy to open much less look into the book. And God is emphasizing to underscore that there is only one who is worthy. And so in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals." Jesus is the one described in chapter 1 as the pre pre-existent sovereign Lord of the universe. He alone is worthy to open this book. The title deed is in the right hand of the Father. Now, God doesn't literally have a hand As Mormons teach, they say, well, God has a human body. In fact, the Mormons' view of the virgin birth is that the father came down and had a relationship with Mary, and that's how Jesus was conceived. My friend, that is sheer heresy. Every major doctrine that is taught in Christianity, they deny. Don't think that they are Christians, though they call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the loving grace of God through Jesus. God the Father is anthropomorphized, Many times in Scripture he has eyes that see to. Him. God doesn't literally have eyes. God is spirit. But God will often attribute human characteristics to himself so we can understand him. There was a time when Jesus was spirit, but he is now incarnated in human flesh, and we will meet him in that way, for he is ever in his glorified body. But the Father, in essence, hands the title deed to the Son who is standing at his right side. And he is given the opportunity to open this book. Now, understand, God's original intention was for Adam and Eve to rule and to reign over this earth. But Adam and Eve lost that through their disobedience, such that when Satan comes and, at the temptation, offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, that's not disputed. It's a legitimate offer because he is, quote, the God of this world, small g., He is the one who has authority over this world. And as we move through time, he's going to tighten his control over the world and ultimately embody his control in his servant whom we will study later on known as the Antichrist. But the Lord Jesus, the second Adam from above, has paid the price so that he might indeed redeem the creation that he purchased with his own life. Now that brings us to verse eight. If you weren't here last time for the message, you might want to go back, and it's at searchthescriptures.org. You can download it in your phone and listen to it. But it will be helpful to you as you work through the revelation. You can see this morning. This is the song before the seals. There's seven seals that are going to be opened. Six of them are listed in chapter six. But this is the song before the seals. It's a precursor of what is going to happen. If you're using your note-taking outline, we want to begin with the song of the creatures and the elders. The song of the creatures and elders. Notice verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures. Now, the old King James renders it the four beasts, though the new King James, virtually like every other English translation, refers to it as the four living creatures. These are not hideous beasts like some Godzilla-like person. And this is not, for that matter, the beast, the Antichrist, is an entirely different Greek word used to describe him. There's about 30 titles that are given to the Antichrist, and one is he's called the beast. Now, this is the word zoe. We get our word zoology. It speaks of life. These are the four living creatures. We'll study them in more detail later on, but we've already noted them from the prophet Ezekiel, the first chapter. They are in that realm of angelic beings known as cherubim. And cherubim, like angels, can change their appearance at will. An angel can come. We may have an angel. We have angels here this morning. They're in the invisible realm. They're worshiping with us. Our congregation's a lot bigger than you realize because Paul tells us that every time the church worships, angels come and they watch. They're watching us this morning. They're watching you worship. Not only is the Lord God watching, angels are watching. But lay that aside. There could be an angel sitting right next to you. The Bible says you can entertain an angel unaware. You say, that doesn't look like an angel. That looks like a demon to me. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, angels can change their form. They can take on human appearance, as can the cherubim. They can change their appearance. God tells us in Ephesians 6 that angels are organized and ranked. And we studied that in Daniel chapter 10. We saw an illustration of that. And one of the highest order of angels are the cherubim. We'll study them further when we come to the 15th chapter. The cherubim are those who announce the verdict, among other things they do, of God's judgment. They will actually give the seven bowls to seven angels to distribute judgment on the earth. Now notice, in when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Again, if you were not here for our message in chapter 4, we did a very careful study of the 24 elders, and it's actually very important to the argument for a pre-tribulational rapture. There are some Christians who think we'll be here for the tribulation, and so they have to make these 24 elders some other group of people. They say, well, these 24 elders are 24 angels. No, they are distinguished from angels in the 4th, 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter. Some would say these 24 elders are tribulation saints, people saved during the tribulation. No, in the seventh chapter, they're distinguished from tribulation saints. Every time you see the word saint in the Revelation, don't think church saints. There's two kinds of saints. There's church saints, those saved during the church age from Pentecost to the rapture, and there's tribulation saints, those saved during that seven-year period. Some say, well, these are members of, uh, they represent Israel. No, they don't represent Israel. One of the functions we're going to learn of the great tribulation is to bring the Jewish people to faith. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to believe that Yeshua Hamasiach is the king, he's the Messiah, he's the savior of the world. They're going to recognize that. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation. No, these are Elders of the church, representative of the entire body of Christ. And so the promise that Jesus made, for instance, in Revelation chapter 3, that we as his people would be taken out of that tribulation that would come upon the whole world. There's never, ever, ever been a time in human history, not even in the great world wars, where there's been tribulation on the whole earth. But there is a day that is going to come that is going to encompass every square inch of the planet, every nation on the world. And God promises through His Son that He will remove His people from that time. And so what you find here are these 24 elders who we have seen are clothed in white garments. That's the arraignment that God gives born-again Christians in heaven. They are given crowns. That's the reward that we are given. And they sit on thrones because one of the things that you will do is you will rule and reign with Jesus. So they're representative of those who've come out of the church age. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Before we're done with revelation, we're going to learn that there are many things that God's people are doing in heaven and will do throughout all of eternity. And one of the things that we will do is we will worship the Lord. You know, when you're born again, when you've been made a new creature in Christ, there's something in your heart that just reaches out and wants to praise the Lord if you're in fellowship with God. Now, you may have come here this morning and you thought, boy, these people are a little excited. They even clapped after, you know, one of the hymns and got, you know. Um, listen, that's what your heart does when you are born again. There's a new proclivity for worship. Listen, when you get to heaven, you can multiply the excitement that you might know in a place like this 10,000 times, 10,000 times, because in your glorified, resurrected body, you will worship God like you have never done before. And so they fall down before the Lamb. What's the first thing you're going to do when you meet Jesus in heaven? Some people think, well, I'll enter in, I'll give him a big hug. Some people think I'll dance before Jesus or I'll give him a high five. You won't do any of those things. You will fall down at his feet and you will worship him. And we will see in a moment that you will not be silent. Praise is about ready to erupt. Notice further the elders representing the body. They're holding, the Bible says, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp. You say, I knew it. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. We're going to be sitting on clouds in heaven strumming harps. Well, people get that idea, unfortunately, from this verse, but there's no clouds here. In fact, the streets are made out of gold in heaven. And the throne room itself is compared to a sea of glass-like crystal, as we studied in the fourth chapter. So jettison the cloud concept, all right? Not to mention that the Father's house, called also the New Jerusalem, paradise, many names, heaven, it will literally someday come out of heaven, and God is going to place it on a brand new heaven, come down through a new heaven onto a new earth. It becomes the capital city of a brand new planet, Earth, and we'll call the whole ball of wax, I suppose, heaven. And so people ask me, do I believe in global warming? Well, I'm not sure I believe in global warming, but I do believe in a global meltdown because God tells us this current heaven and earth, he's going to burn with fire, going to totally destroy it and make a brand new place. And so notice, here are God's people, they're in heaven, and we're going to see them singing. They're going to sing to the Lord. As some of you, it looks like you have Lockjaw on Sunday morning. Look, you may not have a good voice. You say, well, you know, I feel like I have a frog in my throat. Well, some of you sound like a frog with a man in your throat. But listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't say make a good noise. Make a joyful noise. You just make the best noise you can make for Jesus. That's a command of Scripture, And not only are they singing, they're playing harps. I had five years of piano lessons, and my parents spent a lot of money, but it's going to pay off someday. I'm going to be able to play, I'm telling you. And so they are singing, and we're going to see that often in Scripture, music is accompanied by harps. Sing to the Lord, Psalm 98.5, sing to the Lord accompanied by a harp and the sound of music. Now, there are only two instruments that are actually listed in the Revelation, the harp and the trumpet. But I think these are representative instruments of many that are found in the Psalms. Some of you say, well, I want there to be drums. Some of you want guitars, plugged in or not, I don't know. Some of you would say, I'd be happy if all we had there were banjos. Look, the fact is, is that, don't miss the point, the harp And the prayer, the golden bowls, are representative of something very important. Let's read the whole verse. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So while the harps and the bowls are literal, we're told that they are symbolic of the prayers of the saints. Many times in Scripture, Incense is used to symbolize the prayers of God's people. Put out next to verse 8 in your margin, Psalm 141.2. Psalm 141.2, there God says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. That's what King David prays. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Now, I should tell you parenthetically that our Roman Catholic expositors like to use this verse as a proof text that the saints in heaven are praying to God on your behalf, that you pray to the saints, and then the saints take their prayers to God. Well, number one, our dear Catholic friends have a distorted view of sainthood. Sainthood, biblically, is not based on merit or miracles that you've done, which you need to have had both to be dictated as a saint. In the Bible, every Christian is deemed a saint. Every born-again child of God, the newest one and the oldest one, the most consistent and the most inconsistent, are called saints, hagioi, saints of God, holy ones. Sainthood is not something that's earned or achieved. It's something that is credited to you by the grace of God. Listen, there's one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, so you do not pray to the saints. You don't go to St. Valentine when you need more love, as they do. You don't go to St. Christopher to be safe on the road. And so you'll see many with that little statue on their dashboard as we had growing up as a child. You don't go to St. Anthony if you've lost something and you need help to find it. You don't go to St. Peregrine if you are sick. You go to Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. But unfortunately, one popular even evangelical author said, well, this is not Christians on earth praying to the saints in heaven who in turn go to the Father on our behalf. They would say, well, these are the saints in heaven praying for the church below. That's an interesting concept, but it's not a biblical concept. What is happening is here is these are believers. Remember, this is a future event. The church is raptured. You're in this group if you're saved today because you'll be part of the rapture. These are saints who are praying while they are in heaven. They are not saints praying in behalf of someone or on behalf of someone. These are the saints in heaven. You say, well, why are they holding these golden bowls of incense? What is the significance of their prayers? Exactly what are they praying for? Well, the passage is a reminder to me, among other things, that every prayer you've ever uttered will never be forgotten that God remembers. How many of you ever prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you've ever prayed that, okay. Has it come true? No, it has not. God is yet to answer that. His kingdom has not come to earth where His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer that will be answered in the future at the second coming of Jesus where Jesus literally reigns and rules upon the earth for a thousand years. God will fulfill. It's illustrated throughout the Old Testament that Messiah will rule on the earth, that the governments will rest on His shoulders. That never happened at His first coming. Yet at His first coming, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, your son will sit on David's throne. But that has never yet happened, but it will happen. And so here are these saints who are recognizing what is taking place in heaven. The title deed to all of creation is being handed to the son, and he is about to enact judgment upon the world where the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And so they are no doubt excited. They are praying. They are they, they are praising the Lord. And we're going to see their loud voices sounded. Look, there are four things, four things that are out of place right now, but are going to be in place ultimately when Jesus consumes the age. Number one, Jesus is not on David's throne. Number two, Israel is not in the land. Israel has never occupied fully the land that God promised to them. The actual boundaries are given to the Israelis. Even the piece of property they have today do not represent the full boundaries. But God is going to fulfill that promise. Satan and his demons who belong in hell are still creating havoc on the earth. And the church who belongs in heaven, we are still here. But these people realize that the son who with his own blood purchased the title deed to all of the creation is about to enact what God had promised for millennia. And so in verse 9 it says, and they sang, notice, a new song. Why a new song? Two reasons. Number one, God commands us to sing a new song. Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, nothing wrong with the old songs. Obviously, God codified the old songs. It's called the book of Psalms. Matt sometimes has us sing a psalm. And for millennia, God's people have sung the psalms. But God doesn't want our singing to be limited to old songs. He also wants new songs, I think, one, because there's a freshness in our worship that a new song brings where there's a time of personal reflection that from your heart you're able to express back to God in worship. And the word here, new, in the Greek, kainain means something better than the old. And so here is the church in heaven. They are singing a new song because in one sense, absolutely nothing else would do. And when you understand how good and how right it is for the creature to praise the creator, for the redeemed to praise the redeemer, for the delivered to praise the deliverer, then you reach out in your heart to praise. And if your heart has no desire to do that, up there sleeping, watch he's out. Don't disturb him. He's just too happy right now. Listen, if your heart has no desire to worship the living God, there's something wrong on the inside. You are either out of fellowship with God, your heart is a million miles away, or you've never met the living God. And heaven will not be a comfortable place for you. That's why lost people don't spend eternity in heaven. We on Sunday mornings very often has a, we have a foretaste of glory divine. So you get excited and it overflows and you're all clapping and you ought to and praise the Lord. You know, if your cup spills over, let it spill. But don't tip it over. Don't get too wild here. But, but if it spills over, that's okay. But there's a lot of new things in Scripture. You're going to be, sing a new song in heaven. You're going to be given, as we studied in the second and third chapters, a new name. We're going to live in the capital city called the New Jerusalem. And the New Jerusalem will literally come down through a new heaven and sit on a brand new earth. And as Revelation 21.5 says, God says, I will make all things new. If you've been abused and mistreated, just know that someday God is going to make everything just. If you've been suffering and afflicted, God is going to make everything right. And if you are tired of this sinful, evil, sin-sick world, Someday God is going to obliterate every vestige of sin in this whole universe. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, underscore the you there. Who is the you? It is the Lamb. This hymn is given to the Lord Jesus. Now put yourself in the context of someone living in 95 AD when they receive this book. Remember, it's written to seven churches. Like all the books in the New Testament that are written typically for various churches, unless they are a general epistle, they're written for all time. But these seven churches whom we studied, we gave you seven one-hour sermons on them because they were so important. They were under persecution. The emperor Domitian was ruling, and Domitian demanded worship. And every time Domitian came into a room as recorded in secular history, what would they say? They would say, worthy are you, Domitian. Worthy are you. But here these saints read that and they say this is not said to Domitian, but they are said to the Lord Jesus to whom alone it can apply. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. Now, it's interesting to note how the worship has been brought up even to a higher level. In the fourth chapter, they're worshiping the Father for all that He created. But now they're worshiping the Lamb who was slain. And by the way, it's the same word that's used of the Father that's used of the Son. Because indeed, they are equal you know, when a Jehovah's Witness shows up your door and he tries to convince you that he believes what you believe, and they use the same terminology, they just redefine words, you just ask him one simple question, do you worship Jesus? And if they're honest, they'll say, no, we, we don't worship Jesus. Listen, to worship anyone than God is absolute blasphemy. You shall worship the Lord thy God in Him only. When Paul Someone tried to worship him, he tore his robes. He said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. When they tried to worship Peter, he tore his robes. He said, don't worship me, I'm just a man. When Jesus is there in the garden, outside of that area where he was raised from the dead, and the two women come and they fall at his feet and they worship him, he receives that worship. And all of heaven is worshiping the Lamb upon the throne because to see Jesus is to see the Father. He is equal with the Father. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. The word for slain is a particular Greek word that means death by utter violence, by great cruelty. And God had prophesied that that's how Messiah would die a thousand years before Jesus comes to the earth in Psalm 22. 700 years before Jesus incarnates himself in Isaiah 53. He would be pierced through for our iniquity. He died a cruel, horrible death upon a tree, which reminds me, since God wrote about it centuries in advance, prophesied of it in the third chapter of Genesis, that the death of Jesus Christ was not accidental, but it was intentional. Jesus said, I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one has taken it from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. But not only was his death intentional, it was redemptive according to this verse. Notice, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men. anthropoi, men and women. The word purchase was used in John's day of a a man who would redeem or purchase a slave in order to set him free. And that's precisely what Messiah's death did. God purchased us out of the slave market of sin. He wrote our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. He removed us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And He has now given you a new life so that you can live a new lifestyle. And all of heaven just bursts forth in praise over the precious blood that was slain that we might be forgiven. It was intentional, it was redemptive, but notice also from this verse, it was universal. Let's read further. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The effects of the atonement is universal. I did not say universalism. There are groups that teach that in the end all will be saved. Evangelical presses recently put out a book, Love Wins. It was a bestseller for 10 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Rob Bell wrote it. Willow Creek Academy gave him a standing ovation. He said, in the end, love wins. Everybody will be saved. No, Jesus said, broad is the gate, wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many are those that are on it. Not everyone will be saved. But please understand, this verse is not teaching universal salvation. False prophets teach that, but unfortunately, true Christians, whom you will meet in heaven someday, teach that Jesus didn't die for everyone, that he died only for the elect. They're called limited redemptionists. They believe in what we call a particular atonement. Sometimes they're called five-point Calvinists, and they're actually more Calvinistic than John Calvin himself was. John Calvin was a four-point Calvinist, not a five. In either case, if you listen carefully, they don't believe you can walk up to anyone and say, Someone you've never met before, whom you know is a confirmed unbeliever by their fruit. They deny Jesus, They can't say to them, "Jesus loves you and died for you." They don't believe they can say that to anyone. They'll use very carefully couched word, "Jesus died and loves those who would repent and believe." In other words, they don't know whether or not Jesus died for you until you truly believe." And so they're very careful in all of their wording. Listen, I want to tell you that he is going to save people from every realm, sinful people in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. When we came to the Lord's table last Wednesday night, if you were with us, we read 1 Peter 1, you were redeemed. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb. Spotless, the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ died for sins once for all. The just, that's Him. For us, the unjust. Who did Jesus die for? The unjust. My Bible says in the book of Genesis, the intent of man's heart is evil from its youth. Man's heart is not basically good. Don't say, well, he he has basically a good heart. No, he doesn't. Not from God's perspective. Maybe, by the way, you measure things. But the way God measures things is different. God measures things from the realm of perfection. And he says man's heart is corrupt. It is intent from its youth on evil. That man's heart, as Jeremiah says, is desperately wicked. My Bible says there is none righteous, not even one. My Bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you have sinned, you are a sinner And if you are a sinner, then you are a member of the unjust. And Jesus died for you, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Notice, they're redeemed from every tribe. That refers to families or or clans. Uh, And so when you go and you preach to some specific tribe that just seems as pagan and as lost as can be, you can go with authority because God promises people from every tribe will be saved. The redeemed are from every tongue, whatever language of the world they may be speaking. God will save people from every tongue. The redeemed are from every people. That refers to every race in the world. And the redeemed are from every ethnos, every nation, every ethnic body that's united by culture and by common tradition. Can you imagine? Think about John. He's on an aisle. Island. He's on the Isle of Patmos, the Devil's Island, so to speak, an Alcatraz of sorts. Alcatraz, and he's there on that awful place. The church has been persecuted. All of his beloved fellow apostles are dead. He's the only one alive, and he has to wonder, where is it all going to end? And God raptures him up into heaven. And he sees the glorious fruit of what he and those men started where there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation there in glory. You know how encouraging that had to have been to him? Verse 10, you have made them, they're singing, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Three benefits that you as a Christian will experience someday. He made you to be a kingdom. Not a king, but a kingdom. We studied that in Daniel 7 and verse 27. The prophet Daniel said that someday that the kingdom would be given to the saints of the Most High. And if you are saved, you have royal blood in your veins this morning. You are a part of a kingdom. Secondly, God has made you to be priests. You are a part of a priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, there was just a select group of men, men only, that could be priests. And to be a priest, you had to be from a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, and not only from the tribe of Levi, but from a particular family, the the family of Aaron. But no longer anyone can be a priest, anyone who knows Jesus as Savior. I grew up in a church where just certain people could be priests, but God's view of the priesthood is very, very different from the church I grew up in. I was told I had to go to my priest to deal with my sin. God tells me I am a priest and that I can go directly to my Father through His Son, that you can go to the Lord Jesus with all of your sin. Listen, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God has declared you to be a saint if you receive Jesus as Lord and you have direct access to the Father. And third, He tells us, of a future promise that we will reign upon the earth. We will rule and reign with Christ. No wonder they have a new song. He made you to be a kingdom. I know the King James has kings and priests, and they're trying to communicate both concepts together, and I understand that. But he made you to be a kingdom, and you are priests within that kingdom. You are kingdom priests, so to speak. He has made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father, as he says in Revelation 1, 6. And at the end of the book, he says that as priests of God, we will reign with him for a thousand years. This is exciting. They are excited. They are singing praise. That's the song of the creatures and the elders. Secondly, I'm almost done. Stay with me. I know it's just the second point, but I'm almost finished. The shout of the angelic host. Stay with me. Let's think about the shout of the angelic host, beginning now in verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne And the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, did you notice how many there are singing? Myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It's the exact expression that we studied in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 10. Let me remind you of that verse. Around the Ancient of Days, one of the designations given for the Father in that chapter, it says a river of fire was flowing... And coming out before him, thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now, the Hebrew word, like the Greek word for myriad, is like the word tithe. It's a mathematical term. We use the term tithe loosely of any amount we give to God. A tithe biblically means literally 10%. Likewise, this word myriad is a mathematical term. It means 10,000. And so when the King James and the ESV rendered Daniel 7 with these words, they're right. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And, of course, the number is even larger here in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 11. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Those standing before him, attending God, serving God, doing his bidding, are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. That's a big number. People asked me recently on the Bible line, a person called in, they said, do we know how many angels there are in the world? It was a good question. And the answer is, no, we don't. But we do know it's a fixed number, that God created a fixed number of angels never to create any more. We do know, as we'll see later on, that a third of the angels are now demons. They're fallen angels. But God made a fixed number of angels. We like In heaven we'll be like the angels. We won't be angels. People say loosely, well, he is an angel now in heaven. No, he's not. Angels are angels. People are people. But we'll be like the angels in that we will not procreate. And so angels don't create little baby angels called cherubs. There's a fixed number. But we know there are millions and millions of angels. If you just take 10,000 times 10,000, that's 100 million. And you add to that thousands of thousands, and these are just those who are in the throne room, not those who are doing God's work around the universe. There are angels here this morning in the invisible realm that are watching the church worship. Jesus said that every child is assigned assigned angels. Listen to this verse. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Children don't have guardian angels as such, but they have angels plural. And if there's 1.9 billion children in the world and they all have at least two angels, we're talking about a bunch of angels. The word myriad is the largest number that the Hebrews and the Greeks use. So basically, when they say myriad upon myriads, they're basically saying a number that is impossible to count. Notice now verse 12. With the redeemed church, they are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Now, they are saying, but I think they are singing. And so I think the net Bible is correct when it says, "Uh, all of whom were singing in a loud voice. The word that is actually used there, legantes, in terms of uh, the structure in the Greek New Testament, is amplifying the song. In other words, in essence, he's saying, here's the lyrics that they were saying. He's expanding the uh, verse here in the song. You say, can angels sing? Of course they can. Yes. Hark the herald angels song. right? (laughs) Uh, Now, we don't know, you know, uh, that they were singing there you know, on, on the incarnation, probably were. But we do know angels can sing. In Job 38, at the creation of the world, the morning stars, one of the terms, designations given for angels, the morning stars sung, and all the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, shouted for joy. It's a Hebrew parallelism, two terms used to describe angels, the sons of God and the morning stars. They sang, Job tells us, the creation of the world. And notice what they're saying with the church. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. I reminded you last time that there's only one thing man made in heaven. That's the scars of the Lord Jesus. We sang it a few months ago, crown him the lord of love, behold his hands inside, rich wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. You will see the nail scars of Jesus in heaven. It will be a constant reminder of the price of your redemption. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, seven attributes. You're worthy to receive power because Jesus is, as 1 Corinthians says, the power of God. You're worthy to receive riches. We speak of the unfathomable riches of Christ. He is worthy, the Lamb, to receive wisdom because Jeremiah and Isaiah say that the Messiah is the embodiment of wisdom. He is worthy to receive glory. In fact, God tells us that the Lord, or might, in that He is powerful, and someday He will come in great might. Same word, dealing out retribution. All seven attributes are found elsewhere in the New Testament. We've got to finish. Let me conclude with the saying, not the song, but the saying of the whole creation. The saying of the whole creation. Beyond the song of the creatures in the shout of the angels, which is really a song, there is a saying of the whole creation. Verse 13 And every created thing which is in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, this third group acknowledges both. Him who sits upon the throne and the Lamb who is standing at His right side. And they are attributing to both worship and praise. And if you remember from verse 6 to the Holy Spirit as well, this is a triunity picture here. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in it. Now, grammatically and contextually, It does not appear that this group is singing. They are just speaking, and rightly so. Because those who are on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and in the sea would comprise both believers and unbelievers. But they will affirm these very truths. Paul reminds us of that. He quotes the same passage from Isaiah in Philippians 3, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Because the Lord Jesus was willing to come and to be slain, he has been given the dignity above all dignities, the rank above all ranks. He is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. The same title given to the Father is also given to the Son. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Those who are in heaven, all of God's holy angels, all the believers from the Old Testament realm, all the believers from the church age, all the tribulation saints will confess that truth. Those who are on the earth, both believers and unbelievers alike, John adds, and those on the sea, He will be marveled at, the Scripture says, amongst those who have believed, but those who are not believers will also acknowledge His Lordship. Even those under the earth, an expression that we studied in our exposition of Philippians, that pictures that place below that lost people spend in eternity. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, while God allows you the right today to confess Jesus freely as an expression of your own will, He will not give you that right in eternity future. If you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you will have no choice Before he forever assigns you into a place of judgment to say, Jesus is Lord. Every human, every tongue, every person will give him the praise that is due. Those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, those who are in hell, even Satan himself will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now you can ignore him, you can use his name in vain. You can blaspheme Him. You can downright reject Him. But you will confess Him. Every person will. And He will receive His rightful place before all that has been made. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. 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 And the elders fell down and worshiped father I thank you today for your word help us not to be flippant with it help us to pay careful attention to all that it says help us to gird up our minds for action that we might reject that which is false and embrace that which is true Father, we live in a day when your word is mocked and laughed at, rationalized, where its truth is taken away. But thank you that everything you said you will do. Thank you that we are still in an age of grace where men and women and boys and girls can call upon Jesus in faith. Thank you that he died for all, that anyone can come and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone today, Father, to do that. In simple, childlike faith, knowing that Jesus completely paid their debt, help them to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all that we are. Thank you for this picture of what you tell us someday we will be doing in heaven. But while we are here on the earth, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to invest in the things that truly matter Father, how fragile this life is. You said our life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and is gone. And soon the years turn into decades and our life has ended. Help us, our Father, to invest in the things that really matter, to set our mind on the things that are above and not the things that are upon the earth. Help us to invest in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. Help us to help others to know Jesus is Lord and help us to live every breath for him and for his honor and glory. And we ask it in his holy name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation and you may be in Graniteville this morning or Bluffton or Hilton Head or here in this auditorium, but there's a decision you might need to make. Maybe you've never openly confessed Jesus as Lord. That's kind of a first step, and it's an important first step. Jesus said, if you're his, you won't be ashamed of him. And so we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. If you have a decision to make, you can leave your seat here or there and come down to the front row. If you've never been baptized, as we baptize these seven new believers today, I invite you to come, leave your seat, take that step of obedience. Maybe you need a church home. I want to ask you to leave your seat and come. We need you. You want to help us make a difference and come and help us. So Matt, lead us. Would you come now?